chapter 9, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have come I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Thank you, beautiful wife of mine. <laughs> good evening. How's everyone? Good. Pretty good. All right. Um, I, uh, as I was worshiping during the song "Stronger." I just had this this moment. I've been thinking about angels a lot. There's there's all these moments where angels show up in Daniel, and as we were singing, I just I, I had this kind of picture in my mind of angels just coming to worship alongside of us and with us. And I then we started singing, "Open up my eyes to the things unseen," and I thought, Lord, how 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 many times are we going to get to heaven? And, and actually see that you are so present. You were so present. You showed up to be with us, to minister to us, and, and to help us. So I just thought that was encouraging. Uh, I don't know how that lands on you, but I, I just want to say that God is with us tonight. Amen? He is with us. And when we read hard texts like Daniel, the only reason why any of us are going to walk away from, from this with anything is because God is with us. It's not because I'm super bright. It's not, it has nothing to do with me. It's because God the Holy Spirit cares for his church in incredible ways. And he wants to encourage your heart tonight. Amen. He wants to help you see Christ as more beautiful. He wants to lift your soul. Amen? Amen. So that's what we're expectant for God to do. And I'm just going to pray once more that God would do that. Father, I invite you to do what I just uh, what you say you do, what you love to do, you show up when your church meets, you say that, you inhabit the church's praises, and we're praising God, we're praising, and we're, we're worshiping you as we look to your word. So give us all the things that my wife just prayed, and all that we all just prayed uh, individually. Would you answer those prayers and meet us in amazing ways right now? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there's been quite a few times in my life that I have prayed specific things to the Lord and God shut the door. Only to open up another one. Better sometimes. My, my wife is a perfect example of that. <laughs> I, I didn't understand along the way there were times where doors were shut. But God had a bigger, better plan, right? So often when we, when we are in that position, we can't see, but then when we look back, it becomes so much more clear that God is wiser than us. His ways are higher than ours, right? He's got, he's got a much bigger plan. His timing is perfect. And we end up saying, thank you, Lord, for not answering my prayer in that moment or in that way, right? This is a tension that God's people have faced for millennia. Faithful Christians and, and before Christ, faithful God-fearers have prayed and pleaded with God fervently for salvation. There's, you know, there's a reason that, that this moment when Christ comes down the road, they're shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! You know, they're, they're fervently praying. But in the past and in the present, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we expect. Sometimes He, he answers those prayers partially, but what we know, again, is that God's ways are higher. They're, they're just higher. They're bigger. They're fuller. They're richer. They're better. God 
is working in amazing ways. Even if we don't understand it, even if our prayers are not answered the way that we think, God's purposes are bigger and better. Today is Palm Sunday. We just read a text that, that showed us Christ's triumphal entry. This is, this is the first day of Holy Week and the day that throughout the, the years the church has celebrated that day. They've celebrated it um, because the King had come. Because Jesus had come. But even that moment left the disciples scratching their head because just a few days later, their king, who was praised by all, would be hanging on a cross. Even their prayers would come up. They, they, they're, they're saying, Lord, what are you doing? Where are you? What? Their prayers are not answered the way that they would have expected. So this day is worth celebrating for a lot of reasons. And I, I think our texts, text that we're getting into opens, uh, it shows us a few particular things that I want to go after. We'll see, first of all, that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. And, and the greatest answer to our prayers is Christ. Yeah. It is Christ. The second thing we'll see is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem that Palm Sunday that we celebrate today. It was prophesied long ago. And it's amazing to see how that history unfolds. We're going to look at that, how God fulfills that promise. And then finally, we'll see that, that the cross of Jesus, where Jesus was headed, he came into the city to die. That was the purpose of Jesus' triumphal entry. And we're going to see where Jesus was headed was exactly the way that God would fulfill all that he had promised to Daniel almost 500 years earlier. So those three, three, those three things. There's a lot of good news for in this text, for us in this text. So I, I pray that you are encouraged. Let's let's jump in and see. So quickly give a little bit of context. If you've been tracking with us in the the Daniel series, you'll you'll know that Daniel has been exiled from from Israel with his people in Babylon for some time. They've experienced he's experienced great suffering as he was. Cut off from his people, his land, he was castrated and forced to serve in the enemy's court. And he's now at about 80 years of age. I'm sure he prayed many, many times that he was wondering, where are you? But we learned last week that Daniel, around this time, had this epiphany moment as he's reading the scriptures. And he sees that the time promised, this 70-year period of exile, is actually coming to, coming to a close. And it drives Daniel to prayer. It drives him to prayer. What did he pray? Just quickly, he, he confessed his sin and the sin of the people. So he, he confessed his sin and the sin of the people and that God was righteous for punishing them in the way that he did. The covenant had promised that clearly that unfaithfulness would lead to exile and that faithfulness would lead to life in the promised land. So he, he recognized God's Faithfulness, I mean, righteousness in his judgment there. Secondly, he pleaded for mercy. Though he knew that they deserved that judgment, he also pleaded because God is merciful to honor his word. He knew that the judgment period was coming to an end, so he pleaded according to God's merciful character. And then he also prayed for God's namesake that God would save his people. He knew that because Israel was called by Yahweh's name, because Jerusalem was called by Yahweh's name, that meant that his, Yahweh's glory was at stake as they're exiled from the land. And they're, they're a byword among the nations. So he's praying, Lord, for your namesake, do this now. So that leads us to where we are in chapter 9, the second half, starting in verse 20. Let's read along. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to jump in there with me. Um, there's also going to be a text on the screen, but you may just want to have your eyes on the text a bit tonight because there's so many little details that we're going to be walking through. And if it's not up on the screen, I'd like to have a Bible in front of you. Read along with me. Verse 20. We're up. Just silent. You, you read along. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. The first point I want to 
make is that God answers prayer. Twice Daniel mentions here that it is while he was praying that Gabriel shows up. While he's praying. This is amazing. Daniel doesn't have to wait. He's, he's still pleading to the Lord for these things when Gabriel shows up. The angel comes in swift flight. This is the, the one who Daniel has seen in another vision. He's one of two angels mentioned in Scripture by name. And he's come to answer Daniel's prayer. He's bringing God's answer to Daniel. Now, we've said this before, but the unseen world is just as real as the things that we see right now. I just said a few minutes, minutes ago, open up my eyes to things unseen. The unseen realm that we do not see is just as real as what we see right now. And it is there that God and his heavenly hosts dwell. And also angels and demons. So right here we see, we see Daniel praying in faith. And those prayers moving outside of the realm of what he sees. This is the same for us when we pray. It moves outside of the realm of what we see by the power of the Holy Spirit into God's presence. And what God does is he hears. He hears the prayers of Daniel, Daniel's faith-filled prayers. And he sends from heaven to earth into the seen realm. And Daniel sees the angel with his eyes. It's from that realm that Gabriel had come, and he has a message for Daniel. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. I love that. Daniel said, simply, he made me understand. He made me understand. Daniel's prayer was answered partially right here as Gabriel comes to just simply show Daniel what God was up to. He's, he's there. God, God has come to help him understand, get a fuller picture. One of the things Gabriel helps Daniel understand was simply that he heard his prayer and that he was bringing an answer to his prayer. He acted immediately as a result of Daniel's prayers. Read verse 23 with me. It says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, this is Gabriel talking to Daniel. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. At the beginning, at the beginning of Daniel's prayers. That is amazing to me, and I wish that our hearts would believe that when we speak to God, He begins to, to listen. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. I get, I get so excited about these things. At the beginning of Daniel's prayers, God began to act. From Daniel's mouth to God in the heavens, in an instant, God begins to work like a father or a mother moving to their child's cry. God hears Daniel, and he wants Daniel to know that. In fact, the very year that Daniel made this request was the year Cyrus made a decree that allowed for God's people to return to Israel. The desolations of Jerusalem were already being brought to an end because of this man's prayer. Why all this movement in the heavens? I love this phrase. Gabriel says, for you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. What a powerful ground. Like the, the angel says, from the beginning of your prayers, God was moving. A word went out. Gabriel was sent to, to show Daniel why, for you are greatly loved, Daniel. Church, that's true of you if you're in Christ. That is true of you. I love this because Daniel suffered a great deal throughout his life. He's about 80 years old at this point. He, point he, and he, he's, he's experienced all the suffering that I mentioned, mentioned earlier, and yet God still says to him, you are greatly loved. Friends, I need you to hear that your circumstances are not what prove God's love for you. When you're suffering, when your health is failing, 
When you're losing people, when things are falling apart, that is not proof of God's love or not for you. The only thing that determines God's love for you is whether you're in relationship with Him or not. That's it. Simply a relationship. If you're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, you are greatly loved. How do I know this? John, the apostle, the one who's called the, the, the beloved of the Lord, the, the, the one whom Jesus loved, he writes to the church, and how does he address them? He calls them beloved, greatly loved. You, if John, the apostle, were addressing you, the church, and, and technically he does, as we read his, his uh, letters to the church, these letters are for us. He addresses you, beloved. You who are in Christ, beloved. So when you pray, God moves because you're loved. When you pray, God moves. He answers our prayer. He moved for Daniel because he was loved and he moves for us. This is one of the clearest pictures in scripture of God moving in history at the, at the prayers of his people. And dare I say that this scenario is being played out day by day, moment by moment in history when we pray. And I know that we don't always see angels show up, but that we don't always hear an audible voice or, or any voice at all. But, but here's what we know is that God is actively listening. You have his ear right now. You have his ear and he is answering and he's working. And as I said earlier, I believe that there's coming a day when we see him face to face. He's going he's gonna to show us all the ways that he was moving at our prayers. Oh, that God would give us faith to believe that so we would pray. <laughs> Amen? You have God's ear. He moves when you call. That's, that's my first point. Yet, sometimes the answers to our prayer, prayers are different than we expect, Right? It, it, they were different than what Daniel expected. Gabriel says, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Let's see what he showed Daniel in verse 24. And this is where it gets really fun, so just get ready. <laughs> Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So even though Daniel perceived rightly that the 70 years of judgment was about to come to an end, Gabriel shows him that there is more. There's more to come. There were more trials ahead. There, were, there was more time before the complete salvation. I'll get into that in just a minute here. But God had a bigger redemption plan than simply bringing Israel out of exile. His redemption plan was much more complete than that. Yes, God was going to answer Daniel's prayer for Israel's salvation. He was going to bring them back to the land, but it was so much fuller. Before I say more, I need you to know that this section of Scripture is one of the most debated Perhaps in Daniel, perhaps in Scripture. It's, it's a crazy kind of section, so I, I have to say that there are open, we said this before in this, uh, in this sermon series, there are open-handed and closed-handed issues with Bible interpretation. Closed-handed is like Jesus is God, Jesus dies for sins, you know, he's coming again, those sorts of things. Open-handed are, are some of these matters. We say, I think this is what it means, but it, there's a little bit of room for other interpretation, Right? So we need, we need to be able to have some room for disagreement. Ross and I will disagree on a, on a particular element in this sermon. We, we have, we've had some good conversation about uh, this text. But yeah, we need to have those sort of hearts, humble hearts that recognize Scripture's hard. Sometimes we don't see everything fully clearly, but we will one day. That's the good news. We will see it all clearly one day. Seventy weeks are decreed. So most scholars understand the 70 weeks, or more literally, 70 sevens, to be made up of 70 times 7 years. So the sevens are 7 years. 
I'm not going to get into the details of how weeks and, and years uh, go, but, but that is, a, a, I think, a good way to interpret uh, the, the sevens based on other places in Scripture that uses that language. Um, but most scholars agree that it's made up of 70 times 7 years or 490 years but what they don't agree on is how these particular years apply to different periods of time. There's, so there's some different interpretations around that. So my goal right now, I want to quickly kind of lay out a few of the different views of how people interpret the 77s overall. And then I'm just going to try to say what I think is clear, what I think it means. And if you want to dig deeper and and. and you know, look at a commentary and look at a study Bible and you know you can ask us if there's some good resources. I would love to talk further with you and figure out if we can get our head around something and you know if you have a problem with something I say today, I'd love to talk more. But the, but that's where I'm I'm gonna go. So this part's kind of complicated, so jump in with me, follow the text, whatever it, it takes to just get your head around it. So three main views. This passage, one refers to events surrounding Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And this is known as the Maccabean view. Verse 25 points to an anointed one who will restore and build Jerusalem. So these interpreters hold that Judas Maccabeus, who cleansed the temple in 164 BC, around the time of the death of Antiochus, was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So this prophecy, they believe, is leading to that moment when Judas Maccabeus cleansed the temple. I don't think that totally gets at what, what is being said here in this prophecy, like that, that this, these events are going to bring about an end to transgression, that it's going to make an end to sin and bring an everlasting righteousness. So I don't, I don't think, a lot of scholars don't agree that, that that is the fullest picture of what this prophecy is, is moving to our second view. Some hold that the 77s or 70 weeks are to be understood figuratively to show completion, kind of like Jesus' command to forgive 70 times 7. Now, these interpreters point to the connection of 7 with the 70 years of captivity. They point to the weekly Sabbath. They point to the, the Sabbath year of rest or to the year of Jubilee. There's, there's all this connection to 7, to completion. And these are laws that God had given to his people. So these numbers, therefore, they, and these interpreters believe symbolize God's perfect appointment of time, which basically leaves no more need for specificity around the dates that we're about to look at. Uh, so, to me, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that seven has a, a, a bigger figurative, uh, you know, it's pointing symbolically to completion. There's no doubt in my mind that's all over Scripture. In fact, the, the 70 years in exile corresponds perfectly to the number of years Israel had failed to keep the Sabbath year of rest. It's pretty amazing. 490 years of disobedience divided by seven, those, you know, every, every seven years they were supposed to have a, a Sabbath year of rest. And if you divide 490 years by seven, it's 70 years. So God let the land rest those 70 years while Israel was in exile. Are you tracking with me? It's kind of, there's a lot, there's a lot here. So, even though taken figuratively, these complete periods of time, most believe, end in the first century AD. So let me, let me just restate that quickly. Even those that would look at these, these dates that we're going to look at figuratively, primarily, they still see it all pointing to a time around the time of Christ. 490 years later in 1st century AD. They're just not trying to go after the specific dates. Okay, thirdly, interpreters view the 70 weeks more literally as specific periods of time leading up to specific event, events around the time of Christ. But the biggest challenge these interpreters face is what dates to start with. So is it Cyrus's decree in 538 BC when he gave permission to the Jews to return and rebuild the temple? If so, that would land 490 years later at 48 BC which is a date with little significance. Or possibly it was the degree of Artaxerxes in Ezra 7, which happened in 458 BC. This, 
This uh, mostly dealt with provisions for the temple, but it also spoke of magistrates and judges being appointed, which would imply that there was a city being built, and this was all around the time of Nehemiah. And interestingly, that 490 years later, from Artaxerxes' uh, uh, decree, lands at 33 AD, which a lot of scholars believe is the day Jesus was crucified and rose again. Is this interesting to anyone, or am I just losing everybody? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> or some interpreters believe you should subtract the final week described in verse 27 from the 70, leaving you still at 26 AD, around the time that Jesus was baptized and started his ministry. So no matter which angle you take as you look through this, there, there are interpretive problems. There, we were wrestling, uh, it was not literally wrestling, but Michael uh, Ross and I, we wrestled over the text last night. We were just like, but what about this? Because Ross would say this, and I would say this, and, and Michael would be like, no, no, that's right. You know, that doesn't work there. There's going to be, there are problems, and this is the reason why it's such a debated text. We're, we're trying to do our best. But, but while I believe that there are likely both literal and figurative elements to the times described, what is clear to me, and I think to most scholars, is that these times mentioned are all leading to Christ. Which is absolutely amazing. I just... I mean, we could get caught up in these numbers and we could try to figure out like what's going on. But, but guys, Daniel's being told that the Christ is going to come at a particular point in time. Like right at a particular point in time. 490 years later, the Christ was going to come. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. Jesus is the center of history, right? Even our calendar is marked with the terms B.C., before Christ, or A.D., in the year of our Lord, right? Jesus is the center of history. Even Daniel, you know, is prophesying over and over the one who is going to come and, and restore the land and the people. We read in Daniel 2, about the little stone who was going to crush the fourth kingdom and grow to rule and reign over the earth. We read about the Son of Man who's going to be given dominion in Daniel 7. And now we're going to, in just a moment, we're going to read about an anointed one who will be cut off and bring an end to sin. All of this is pointing to Christ. So church, this is an amazing, amazing description of the work of Christ in the Old Testament for us to marvel at. So let's dive a little deeper and try to make sense of how I see and a lot of scholars see Christ so clearly in this text. Let's, let's dive in. So this is getting after Christ's work on the cross. Look at verse 24 again with me. Seven weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put it into sin, and to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So 70 weeks are decreed. Decreed by who? I believe decreed by God. Decreed by God. God was showing Daniel that there is a specific time set in history when God would answer Daniel's prayer in completion, in fullness. And what's, what's amazing to me, if you look through Daniel's prayer in, our, in the beginning of this chapter, you'll see that, that these things that, that God is saying that he's going to bring about are responses, they're answers to the core issues that Daniel has. He, he is, he's wanting forgiveness, atonement. He's wanting restoration of the temple. Those are the things that Daniel is praying for. And God is saying, these are the things I'm going to bring about. Just in a different way than he expected. So free friends, Jesus accomplished everything promised here in verse 24. How? Through his death on the cross. Through his atoning work on the cross. I want to explain what, what atoning means and, and what he did to bring about these things. Just as Adam's sin drove him out of God's presence to the east. Even Israel's sin, our sin, has driven us out of God's presence and favor into 
a deadly place, into a place of exile. Sin has left us outside of God's presence. And that penalty is death. And so the only way for Israel, for us, to be brought back into relationship with the source of life was through sacrifice, a path instructed by God. So if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll, you'll see that God sets up a sacrificial system in which the sinner would be able to be atoned, his sins would be able to be atoned for through a substitute. An innocent lamb's blood would be shed in his place, in the place of the sinner. Otherwise, God would require the blood righteously. He was a good judge to require that of the sinner. We, we deserve death. And in this way, through the sacrificial lamb, the penalty would be covered or atoned for by the lamb so that God's wrath could be turned away and so that the sinner could be brought back into relationship with God. This was everyone from the priest to be able to enter into the, in, even into, to be able to go and make sacrifices for the people, down to the, to the common person. There were sacrifices that had to be made. And in the same way, church, Jesus, the spotless lamb, who willingly rode into Jerusalem knowing that he was going to his death, was coming to substitute himself for us. He was coming to atone for our sins, for your sins. He was coming to save the world. So at the cross, as Jesus died, Jesus shouted the words, it is finished. He shouted those words. And we see here that the, the transgression will be finished. Church, Jesus finished the transgression. Jesus put an end to sin at the cross. And Jesus atoned for your and my iniquity at the cross. Amen? Amen. Furthermore, we're told that God would bring in everlasting righteousness. Not only was God going to cleanse, atone for our sin, but we're, we're told that he was going to make us clean, holy. When God looks at you, he doesn't just say forgiven. No, he says you're forgiven and clean. He's clothed you in robes of white. So he looks upon you as a pure man or woman. No matter what you've done because of Jesus. We are clean because God has made us righteousness. He's brought in everlasting righteousness. We're also told that God would seal both vision and prophet. Again, this is Christ bringing fulfillment to this. He did this by accomplishing everything that the prophets had prophesied and fulfilling all the, the word of God, the law, all that God had promised. And he thus sealed both vision and prophet. I wish I had more time to dive into that, but keep moving on. Further, he would anoint a most holy place. Yes, God was going to provide Israel with a temple to make sacrifice again, to worship in again. He was going to bring them out of exile back to Israel. But church, when Christ came, when Christ came, when his blood was shed, Jesus was actually cleansing not only that temple, but, but God, he was cleansing God's heavenly temple. That's right. So that the heaven... That heaven and earth could ultimately become one again like Eden. This is what the, the, the author of Hebrews describes in chapter 9 when he says these words. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood... Not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Praise the Lord. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of hyper could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ would purify our consciousness, consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. By the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came to earth to die. He entered the city on the day, uh, uh, on Palm Sunday, in order to go to the cross and atone for our sins. This is exactly what God was prophesying to Daniel. He was showing him 
the more complete picture of redemption. He came to atone for our sins and prepare the way, not just for a rebuilding of that Jerusalem, but the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. A Jerusalem where God and man would dwell again together in fullness. That's what God was opening the way for. That's what Hebrews author is describing, where we all have access to God through Christ Jesus. That is awesome. Praise the Lord. Jesus accomplished all of this. Friends, Daniel didn't know it, but Jesus was the fullest answer to his prayers. And isn't that true for us always when we pray? Even when we're praying for specific needs and wants, Jesus is the greatest answer, the greatest thing that we need. In him, everything we need, we find. We find everything in him. I'm going to come back to that in our application, but let's continue in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. All right. I want you to have your face either there or in your Bibles and just follow up, follow along the best that you can. If you want to mark or write a note about something that you can't uh, quite understand, then, uh, then do that and let me know. But um, this seven weeks is the first of three time periods that Daniel, that Gabriel is going to unpack. He said seven sevens, or 49 years. I believe, with Ross, that this most likely refers to Artaxerxes' decree that Israel could return and rebuild Jerusalem, and that it also is referring to Nehemiah, that he is most likely this anointed one, a prince, who is going to head up the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Let's keep going. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This is the second of the three time periods described. And this one is made up of 62 sevens or 434 years. And I believe this refers to the time from Nehemiah when he built, rebuilt the city all the way up to the time of Christ. And even though Jerusalem was rebuilt, we're told that it would be built in a troubled time. And I think this is, is pointing to the fact that they would be persecuted. And they did face great persecution. Even though the city was rebuilt, the Greeks persecuted them greatly. We, we heard about that in Ross's sermon with Antiochus coming. So in a time of great trouble, even though the city would be rebuilt, it would be rebuilt in trouble. And if we're right about the dates of these time periods, 49 years plus 434 years, I, I did the math in the cal calculator, it's really hard math, but I, I, <laughs> that leads us to A.D. 26. Right around the time scholars believe Jesus was baptized and began his ministry. Then verse 26 tells us that after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Jesus' ministry lasted, it's believed by scholars, about three years. It started right around, depending on which scholar you follow, there's some disagreements, but his ministry started around mid-century 26 AD, and it led to right around 30 AD which is another strong possibility for the date of Christ's crucifixion. All right, let's continue. I'm, I'm just trying to show you what I think this, this says, and I'm going to bring some application. Verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So even as Daniel's prayer was answered, was going to be answered in a much fuller way than he expected, we know that Jesus' disciples' prayers were answered in a surprising way. They were expecting, not that Jesus would go to the cross and die, but they were expecting 
Jesus to come and wipe out the enemies. But here we see something a little different. Even after Jesus is prophesied as being cut, he, he's, he prophesied as being cut off, and then we're told the city's going to be destroyed again. A people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end is going to come like a flood. There's going to be war and desolations. All of a sudden, it's like it, we're, we're doing it all over again. We're right back to it. This was surprising. And we know on this side of the cross that the Messiah in his first coming, Jesus was not going to completely make everything right the first time, but he was going to make it all new in, the, in his second return. So Jesus even prophesied that there was more to come before the end. But we're told that another prince would come. We know from history that the Romans were ruling at the time of Jesus' death and that the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed just as Jesus prophesied about 40 years later after his death and resurrection in 70 AD by Titus, a Roman ruler. So Gabriel says this city and temple's end is going to come like a flood. It's going to, it's going to happen quickly. And desolations are decreed. Titus like Antiochus, would actually set up in the temple sacrifices to foreign gods and desecrate the temple once again. Verse 27. We're told he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now this is maybe the most interpretively difficult section for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue something, but again, I think this is where Ross and I disagree some. Verse 27, I believe, describes the final, well, it does, it just, sorry, verse 27 describes the final period of time, the 70th seven. So right now we've seen seven sevens, 62 sevens, and now we see the final seven of the 70 sevens, right? And we're told that he shall make a strong covenant Presumably, this is Titus who would make a strong covenant with many for one week. Titus, in fact, did deceive many Jews, and he did do exactly what this verse says. He put an end to sacrifice when he destroyed the temple. So then the question I have is, what is the other half of the week? He's going to put an end to the sacrifice for half of the week. So what is the other half? I tend to see this entire last week as a longer figurative period of time that refers to the present age or the church age. Guys, this is open-handed. <laughs> this is open-handed. This is, this is what I believe is going on. This is called a covenantal or futuristic view, but, but you may have a different view than me, and that's okay. But I believe that it's pointing to the church age. Um, so half of that time was fulfilled partially in 70 AD by Titus's destruction of Jerusalem. And half would be fulfilled in a similar manner by another evil leader who would seek to deceive God's people. Here's, here's what I'm getting proof for that. In the second half of verse 27, we learn of another to come, quote, on the wing of abominations who would make desolate. There's another leader to come. I believe... That this points to, uh, or beyond Titus, the Roman figure, to another Antichrist figure. This ruler coming on the wings of abomination seems to be empowered by Satan. So just as Antiochus and Titus desolated the temple and deceived many, Jesus and Paul actually foretell another who's going to be uh, a desolator. The one who's going to be, uh, he's called the abomination of desolation. You can see that in Matthew 24 and in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. And he would also try to deceive God's people. So this is, this, there's, a, there's like some type, ha, types happening here, right? These, these guys, Antiochus, Titus, they're deceivers. They're empowered by Satan. They're trying to lead God's people astray. I think that there's another to come, even in our age. And I don't know how we experience that on a daily basis, but I, I think... I mean, I think in some ways we experience that on a daily basis where, you know, the enemy is, is trying to deceive us, right, through a lot of different influences in the world. But I think perhaps there's another to come, another Antichrist figure. But again, just as God wiped out Antiochus, 
in an instant. He wiped out Titus in an instant. Verse 27 shows us that God promises to wipe out this desolator at an appointed time. Okay, so I just got, I got mixed up in a bunch of <laughs> interpretive details. And maybe some of you have checked out, maybe some of you are like, that's cool. I didn't, I don't, you know, I didn't understand that. But if you take anything away from all that, I want you to see this. God is going to wipe out his enemies. At an appointed time. There is an appointed time for the end of all satanic influence in this world. Every ruler who's led by Satan, every ruler who does his work, is going to be wiped out at a particular time. We know that from scripture. Amen? That's coming, and that's good news. And God shows Daniel that despite all this history, trials are coming upon the people. Trials are coming to Jerusalem. There's a ton of stuff. But here's what you need to know, Daniel, and here's what you need to know, God's people. God will bring an appointed end to all desolators, including this one. Amen? And why is God waiting to do this? Why? Why doesn't he just do it now? Friends, this is so that you and me and our children and our children's children, and all the peoples of the earth have an opportunity to hear the word of God, this gospel that's going into all the earth and has power to atone for sins, to save individuals. That's why he's waiting. His waiting is patience. It's mercy to us all. Now, if this is confusing like it is to me, I need you to hear this. The main point God has for Daniel and for us today is that he has and he will fulfill his promises and bring salvation in Jesus. That is, that is the main thing I need you to take away. He has a specific time allotted for every one of these events. The one who writes history is revealing history by his word. He's showing us the future and that should give us hope. Even right now, it should give us hope in the midst of all the craziness that we experience in the world, in our culture, in our own lives. That should give us hope. God has appointed times for these things. If he has fulfilled his promise and brought the Messiah, he will fulfill his promise and bring the Messiah again. Jesus will come again. Amen? Even more, this text teaches us that we have a strong anchor in the midst of our trials. In the midst of every crazy circumstance. And that is, we have God's ear. Right now. In the battle, we have God's ear. And if we have his ear, then we know he will answer us and he will lead us. And he will meet us in our time of need. So if you're struggling and suffering today. If you're feeling doubt as you're waiting on God's promises to be filled. If you're feeling, Lord, I've prayed and prayed and prayed for this healing. I've prayed for my family's salvation. If you're feeling that suffering or that doubt, I need you to hear that the same God who fulfilled his promises to Daniel, who prayed and prayed and pleaded, is the God who will meet your needs, who will fulfill every need you have. The answer to your prayers may be different than what you expect right now. It might be different than you expect, but it will always be good. Daniel prayed for a very specific thing, and God said, hey, yes, but there's so much more than that. And Israel didn't understand, and even the disciples didn't understand, but each time he's saying, hey, there's a bigger, there's a fuller picture. I need you to see it, and I need you to trust in me. And that's what God would have for you now, that you would look to him, that you would keep crying out to God just as Daniel did, and that you would trust that he has your good in mind. His purposes for you are fuller and richer and better than you could ever imagine. Our greatest need is a savior. And God has surely given him to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. And that Savior surprisingly rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as he prepared to die for your sins and mine. And I need you to know that if your health is failing, that one day in Jesus, you will be healed. I don't know if that's going to happen in this life, but in Jesus, that, answer, that prayer will be fulfilled. I need you to know that if your bank accounts are empty, if you're broke 
in Jesus, all your needs will be supplied. And one day, you will have everything in His kingdom. In Jesus, you will have abundant provision. Amen? I need you to know that if you're, if you're depressed, even if the depression doesn't lift in this life, God will bring joy to you in Jesus. I pray that He does that now, but Jesus is still the answer to that prayer. If you are lonely in Jesus, you will find friendship. If you are anxious in Jesus, you will find rest. No matter your need today, church, Christ fills that longing and will fill that longing ultimately in his return. Daniel prayed and pleaded for a particular answer to his prayers. And what did God give him? Christ. That is, Christ, that is all of humanity's need, is that Messiah, Jesus Christ, whom we praise today and say, who is Hannah in the highest. That is Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything we need. So as we pray, we're going to go to worship. And as we pray and as we worship now and during this week leading up to Good Friday and Easter, I want us to remember that Christ is the greatest answer to every prayer that you have. Christ is the greatest answer to every prayer that you have. So let's ask now. I want us to ask as we pray, as we worship, that God would give us more of Jesus. Because when we see Jesus more and know Jesus more, all of a sudden our future looks a little brighter. Our lives look a little happier. God helps us see more clearly when we get more of Jesus. So I want us to pray that way right now. Ask for Jesus to come. Father, I ask that you would give us more of Christ. Thank you. Thank you for sending him. Your people have prayed and pleaded, God, for your namesake to be merciful to us to forgive us, and Lord, you have fulfilled every single promise in Jesus Christ, and we thank you for him. Lord, in just a moment, we're going to take your supper, and we're so glad, God, that you invite us to that table to remember your body broken, your blood shed. Father, would you increase our faith right now as we pray and sing and take the supper together? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.